What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Today's guest is the founder of The Block, the leading media and information brand in the blockchain and cryptocurrency ecosystem with arguably the best newsletter in the space, which obviously pains me to say since I have a newsletter. Mike spent years driving in essential roles around the development of Disney, Google, Venmo, and other major companies. It was his curiosity that led him to transition towards crypto, where now he is the managing director of G2M Ventures, helping major players in fintech and traditional finance enter into the crypto space. With his background, it's safe to say that Mike Dudas is one of the most intelligent and well-researched people in crypto, so I can't wait to dive deep into his thoughts on institutional adoption and the future of this space in general. So, so Mike, thanks so much for, for coming on. Yeah, thank you for, for having me. It's a pleasure. Of course. So before we get into the questions, once again, you're listening to the Wolf of Wall Street's podcast, which uh, airs twice a week, and we talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics. The show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io. And if you like the podcast, follow me on Twitter, check out my website, join my newsletter. You can do both of those things at thewolfofallstreets.io. So now to get into it, Mike, I, I was... Uh, stalking your LinkedIn pretty, pretty hard and, and couldn't help but notice that your top skills were persuasive emailing and functional tweeting. So do, do you have any hot tips on how to do those things? Because they sound like very useful life skills. Yes. Yeah, so uh, what's interesting is I would say that the functional tweeting became dysfunctional actually over the past couple of years as I entered the crypto space. It's, it's virtually impossible to spend a considerable amount of time productively uh, and engage with other folks on a regular basis and, and stay uh, sort of in a, in a really positive, you know, exciting, positive some uh, uh, environment. And, and particularly if you have strong you know, viewpoints and opinions. So I would say I, it's become a bit more dysfunctional. And, uh, and you know, frankly, it, it was much better. I was a fun, better functional tweeter when I was in more uh, sort of boring, bland industries and ecosystems, you know, not sexy parts of fintech. Uh, and when you're trying to sort of drum up interest and excitement. On the persuasive emailing, uh, you know, it, it, it's such a critical part of, uh, sales, both enterprise sales, primarily enterprise sales is what I've been doing for the past decade. And, and sort of the email is everything. But I think we've also seen that shift. You know, that's probably a four-year-old thing that I added to my LinkedIn profile. And I think we've seen, you know, email transition to text messages and you know, persuasive, again, tweets and direct messages. I mean, basically any channel that you can get, Telegram, uh, et cetera, to connect to somebody. So I need to update that. Yeah, you, you serious. The, it may be the most marketable life skill now to be able to deliver a, a concise message in under 200 characters. It really has Absolutely. changed. And I yeah. frankly have overdone it and you've probably seen it. So I think to do it, I think you do a good job of, of staying on message and, uh, and frankly, the frequency not being just too overwhelming. So I think if you reveal too much about your thinking process out loud, uh, I mean, if you do it and you're a genius like SBF, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's one yeah, thing. He's incredible. Yeah. Or Tarun. But uh, if you're like me and you're just sort of spitting out, you know, every thought that's in your head and every article link, it can get a little cloudy. Indeed. So to, to dig into what's more important here, obviously you have a extensive resume in, in FinTech and beyond as we sort of dug into there in the introduction, but you decided to take all those skills and start the block. Unless I'm missing a unless I'm missing something there in the transition, but at least outwardly it appears you were like, we need to start uh, providing better information, doing better research. What made you make that decision and, and head into this space? 
So I've been interested in cryptocurrency, you know, digital assets, whatever you want to call it, but, but really it was Bitcoin uh, in 2013 when I became interested. And I was actually working at Braintree and we were considering adding uh, crypto payments, Bitcoin payments to the gateway so that customers of some of our biggest merchants at Braintree, Uber, Airbnb, and others could use Bitcoin uh, to pay. The idea was you know, lower uh, transaction costs and credit cards. And, you know, this is back when sort of the idea of, of P2P payments and of low cost payments you know, via Bitcoin was pretty exciting. Uh, so we had conversations with Coinbase. Uh, unfortunately, PayPal purchased you know, Braintree while that process was happening. Uh, and that product never got rolled out. I said, unfortunately, it might've actually been fortunately because, you know, what's proven out over the last five, six years is that folks just haven't at scale uh, to date wanted uh, to pay with a highly, highly volatile asset. I think that, you know, the narrative around what Bitcoin is has changed uh, from, you know, digital payments to something more like a store of value. Uh, we could talk more about, you know, whether that's changed. I think that has changed uh, with the advent of stable coins, but, um, Agreed. But certainly, you know, that's what got me excited. When I looked to enter the ecosystem full-time in 2018, uh, it was sort of beginning of 2018, late 2017. It was a peak. Uh, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a financial markets person. Uh, so I looked at you know, where I thought I could add value. And I'm somebody who's typically worked on bringing early stage financial technology to, let's call it 50 to 100x the audience uh, of those early adopters. So I felt like with all this rolling information, competing protocols, multidisciplinary uh, knowledge required to understand uh, digital assets and, and cryptocurrencies, that um, it was really important to have a you know, trustworthy, independent research and media source, uh, knowing that most of the you know, industry sources were owned by you know, very wealthy people with you know, strong stakes, whether it be in Ethereum, Joe Lubin and Decrypt, whether it be you know, Barry Silbert and Coindesk and uh, felt like an independent source was important. And you know, that's sort of borne itself out, borne itself out with our popularity uh, over the past few years. Uh, I really did want to reach a retail audience uh, when I started this in 2018, but that audience uh, hasn't really materialized at scale. And so the block has primarily become a institutional insider a B2B publication, although that is changing over the last, you know, call it four to six months. I want to dig into what you just said. First of all, I need to say that I, I felt like the block has been around since 2014, 15, 16. So it's crazy to me that it only started in 2018 because you've become such a leading brand in the space, of course, which is impressive. But I, I want to dig in. You said that it was originally intended to be a retail offering and you haven't seen that happen at scale. Um, which I find fascinating because, you know, I guess from the outside looking in, it seems like that's where just people on crypto Twitter go to get their information. But it sounds like it's uh, not really the case. Yeah. So our original tagline was crypto simplified. Uh, and I should probably clarify, we, we probably originally, I thought, hey, we, we'd have, you know, five, 10 million, you know, monthly users and page views. And uh, what we actually found is we want to create and we are creating a sustainable business while producing you know, high quality information. So in order to do that, uh, I guess when I say retail, I kind of mean the person on Robinhood or, you know, who's sort yeah. of trading and where we've really found our sweet spot is, you know, to power, power traders and folks who understand market structure like yourselves, all the way through to you know, really significantly large institutions, uh, you know, the fidelities of the world backed 
uh, Gemini, folks like that. And, and we realize that you need a mixed, and you see a lot of this right now, a lot of debate about tech and media, and, and crypto is one small part of that. But what we recognize is you need a mixed model, so a model of uh, research-driven subscriptions and you know, sort of ad-supported, sponsorship-supported, partner-supported uh, journalism and media. And, and they're really complementary to one another, particularly when you're focused in a, uh, what you know, is an emerging and rapidly growing niche. Is the goal to eventually become uh, the same sort of scale or size as a Bloomberg offering is to tra traditional markets and to, to normal markets, something that you know, has increased velocity of information right on time, exactly what you need to know. And, you know, I mean, a Bloomberg terminal obviously is tens of thousands of dollars. So we're not, we're not talking about that per se, but sort of that, that for the, your, your average trader. Yeah, that's the evolution of of the product and, and the brand. So, you know, we started with, and, and I think what most people remember is the news, as you mentioned, you know, Frank Shaparo and, and yeah. Stephen Jang, and it really started that in 2018 and to you know, get quick attention, even Larry Cermak, who's an incredible researcher and, and leads our research team now uh, was, was doing a, you know, a bit of news and supporting the news team. Uh, but, you know, to get to, and so we feel like it's a very emergent, it's an emergent asset class that will over time continue to eat larger and larger parts um, of the financial markets. You're seeing that happen. You know, I think it's what you want to talk about, which is institutions yes. you know, starting to participate in different ways. And yeah, and, and so from a product perspective, We've moved from you know, news only to news plus research to news plus research plus data. You're continuing to layer in those things. So now we have a data dashboard that isn't necessarily like we're not uh, ourselves necessarily creating those data points, but there are fantastic companies, you know, like right. Coinmetrics and many others, you know, Paradigm Research. So, and we're pulling information from them, aggregating. And then what we're trying to do is put insights on top of that uh, and put context around it. We feel like that's the, the phase or the stage that we're at. And, and frankly, people don't necessarily know what the right data points are that are driving value today. Uh, so we try to, you know, we don't necessarily recommend particularly protocols, particular tokens, but we try to put context around what's happening. Uh, and then we think over time it will evolve where many more people will have the sophistication to use the raw data themselves to make their, uh, their own um, their own decisions and their own inferences. But I think the, the set of folks who can do that reliably today uh, and, and make money consistently is, is probably in the low thousands. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, I think there's probably 50,000 people who think they can do that, but that's not true. Oh, I, I agree. And I would probably say it's even, even more skewed towards, yeah. towards failure. So, so we can glean from that, that obviously the business has evolved from, like you said, to news all the way uh, through to, to data. So I, I guess that then begs the point who, who or begs the question, who, who is using that data, right? You say that at the end of the day, you want people to be able to interpret themselves, but you wouldn't be creating that data unless there were much larger players that are looking at it and, and trying to make uh, decisions based on it. Yeah, precisely. So uh, it, there's a really interesting mix. And because we've been fortunate enough to build a, a real business model, you know, we're able to uh, support a research and journalism team that is really robust and, and actually broad and deep. So in other words, we have you know, some engineers who can go really deep on protocol dynamics, technical changes to protocols. And there's an audience for that, which is typically um, you know, startups or uh, investors who are looking, you know, so startups that are looking, hey, what should I build? What's a, what's a technical trend that I should follow? Uh, 
there are investors who are saying, hey, what companies or trends you know, should I invest in? Um, but then we also have uh, folks looking at market structure. Larry you know, does quite a bit of that. Ryan Todd mm-hmm. on our team, uh, for example, does a different set of market structure. So he looks at like, publicly traded companies, things like Square and, and Silvergate and, and you know, the implications around what they're doing, MicroStrategy. Uh, it takes a, a pretty strong mi- uh, macroeconomic view on what's happening in the crypto space. Uh, so we get you know, hedge funds interested in that. Um, larger scale investors. Uh, we have some folks who are doing sort of blockchain type research, uh, and then others who are doing actual financial market infrastructure, you know, so you know, who's doing custody well, who's doing, um, you know, crypto as a platform, crypto security, blockchain analysis, things like that. And the audience there is really interesting, right? We have governments as customers, local, uh, you know, federal. Uh, and then we have, you know, a whole nother section where we're looking at the humongous report on central bank digital currencies. So again, not only are regulators interested in that, but, but also companies uh, who want to understand how do we fit in? Uh, so, you know, I can't speak to specific customers, but you know, folks who are issuing private money. Um, and, and we talk to those folks all day and their customers, not only of the public research that we do that you, you, know, you get with a subscription, but you know, conversations and, and you know, one-on-ones with our research team. Interesting. You just said that governments are customers. So clearly we're seeing a major shift from what drove the market in 2017 to, to an 18 to what's happening in 2020. So I want to really drill into that. Why is a government a customer and what are they looking at here? Is it from a regulatory perspective, trying to figure out what it is? Or is it because governments may actually want to invest in some way, you know, as a reserve, like we've seen companies do? What are governments looking to do here? Right now, uh, we're seeing, you know, they're, they're at the knowledge accumulation phase. And uh, not only knowledge accumulation, but hey, how is, the, uh, how is the research that we're doing being synthesized by some of the leading minds, right? So it's almost like action reaction. Hey, BIS puts out something. Okay, well, what, you know, how do some of the smartest folks out there then interpret that and, and put that into their workflows? Um, so we're seeing that on the you know, institutional side, uh, and you know, call it stable coin issuers and, and folks of that nature will do quite a bit, uh, like again, a massive you know, stable coin report uh, around you know, the implications of you know, sort of issuing you know, KYC, highly regulated money um, versus you know, all the other different types of coins. And so what happens is you know, we get, people join not only for our research, but for the discussions around it. So, you know, we have a Slack group, we have, and you know, this from your own, uh, from your own business, it's a lot of those, uh, you know, private deeper conversations um, where folks are accumulating knowledge, but it's all spurred. The way that you build this business is it's all spurred by, um, you know, putting out some strong viewpoints, research and analysis. And it can't be only one of those things. I've seen, you know, a lot of businesses built uh, around, let's just say, just opinion, right? Or just analysis. And uh, if you're not doing original research and, and context setting and description. So, you know, when, when to get back really quickly to your question about central bank digital currencies, you know, we did a really robust review, you know, sort of across, I think, 15 to 20 different countries or entities, you know, the EU and, and said, hey, here's what they're doing. How, here's how they're thinking about structuring it. Here's the timeline. And so the benchmarking there got folks very interested in what other folks were doing. Uh, and then you become that sort of central, that, that hub of, of, uh, of inbound and then outbound synthesis. 
It's interesting. I used to always make the argument that crypto was a trader-driven market, right? It was completely speculative. So it was the only market we could look at a chart and reliably perhaps have a chance to, to trade it. But I've argued more recently, certainly in the last few months, that this market is no longer driven by traders, right? We're seeing spot uh, kind of buying lead uh, ahead of leverage, but also the narrative has just changed. We see these huge buys from institutions. So why do you think institutions are all of a sudden finally so interested? Because we've been hearing about it for years. They're coming, they're coming, you know? Yeah, so the... Uh, it's, the, you know, markets, I think better than I do. Um, so I can't necessarily speak deeply to, you know, institutional mentality, but what the, the, you know, the smartest people, again, our researchers who are speaking with these folks, um, the, the data companies that are helping them make the case, you know, whether it be to their LPs um, or their shareholders to make these decisions. You know, one is uh, it, it's, been done a, a few times now, right? We have public companies uh, who have taken an extremely strong stand. We have you know, some of the most successful historically macro you know, hedge fund folks to the world who have come out and said, hey, you know, I actually believe that in a pretty significant asset class here um, where store value is, is exceptionally important. Um, you know, as, as a particular property and, and investment uh, allocation as part of a portfolio, uh, you know, we have something new and emergent that just won't die. And, uh, you know, these are simple things. Like, I, you don't overthink it. Um, if you follow, for example, what Michael Saylor is saying, if you follow what any of the, you know, hedge fund luminaries are saying, it's basic stuff that, you know, if you're on crypto Twitter, people have been reciting it like a mantra for, for five years. It's just actually coming true now, right? And it's coming true in a non-hysterical, uh, non-hysterical way, um, in a methodical way, um, and in a relentless way. And so, and it's happening across multiple fronts. So, you have on the institutional side, you have uh, the, the biggest one we haven't talked about yet is you know, PayPal uh, giving the, not only giving the sort of stamp of approval to cryptocurrency and making it available uh, to their customers uh, on the, on the you know, consumer side, but also saying we are committed to this being, you know, a form of money that folks can spend at, you know, our 25 million plus merchants next year is humongous. And then not only stopping there, but Dan Shulman getting out there and saying, look, we've done this in a supremely compliant way. We've done it with Paxos. We've, we've got the you know, stamp of approval from New York state. Um, yeah, they're going all in. And so, yeah, that's just, it doesn't get in my mind more powerful than that on sort of the commercial side. So you've got that, then you've got folks. So you've got the narrative of like sort of payments, the, the biggest FinTech in the East, I'm sorry. Yeah. In the West, um, you know, really going all in as a fast follower and they're doing it as a fast follower because Square did it, right? Square is eating their lunch in terms of, you know, cash apps growing faster on than Bitcoin, Venmo, <laughs> faster than PayPal and Bitcoin's a big part of the story. It's sexy. They market it exceptionally well. Um, and so, you know, they, they've done it the right way. They started with a closed Bitcoin product and, and then they opened it up so that you can, you know, basically move your Bitcoin 
out of the cash app, you know, if, if you'd mm-hmm. like to. So obviously PayPal and Robinhood have limited products now where it all happens, you know, it's kind that of an evolve. IOU. Yeah, exactly. It, it will evolve over time. So you know, that's been a big driver to your point about spot driving this. There's just so much demand right now. Um, and, and, you know, what happens obviously when there's an incredible amount of demand, more demand for the asset than, you know, sort of new supply in terms of what's being mined, you know, price goes up. It's, it's a really exciting time. At the same time, I'm not getting the hysterical stuff that I got in 2017 from my family yeah. being like, Hey, same. I need to FOMO into that. Um, and, and I'm seeing, you know, very reasonable people say to me, okay, uh, the, the time horizon is different. I don't want to trade this Dudas. Uh, but you know, do you think this is something that I should sort of just set it and forget it dollar cost average in and hold. So the whole mindset that being said, so, so that's the, that's the positive. It's not what got me into crypto, you know, in 2013, which was, you know, again, peer to peer money, this idea of low cost payments, let's totally transform uh, global digital internet money. I do still think that that's critical to Bitcoin's, you know, development over the next decade. And I actually deeply hope uh, that, that PayPal, you know, allowing folks to spend Bitcoin at 26 million merchants plays a part in that. I think it will, by the way, because as you expose people who own a hundred dollars or $200 worth and, you know, becomes, you know, 150 or you know, it goes up 50%. I think that type of person, you know, might be willing to actually spend it. So it's going to be really, really interesting to watch. I've always found it interesting though. And, and you mentioned sort of the difference now between Bitcoin and stable coins, which is worth digging into because when yep. you were talking about it in 2013, you were just talking about Bitcoin and it's not the best, uh, you know, peer to peer money, even though that's the name, you know, the white paper, peer to peer cash. But now we have stable coins. Aren't stable coins just a better product than PayPal itself? They, they are a, so they're a better product than the way pay, the PayPal network works Correct. today. In other words, right. you know, PayPal's effectively sitting here as a rentier, like just, effectively taking a, a rate because of the network that they've built out. That's a, a take rate. That's just higher than, than Mark. I mean, it is market because uh, you know, the PayPal button is on tons of sites. The good news is stable coins are coming along. And this is an area that I'm extremely passionate about. And most likely the focus of the next business that I build coming along an incredibly wonderful time. Uh, you may see sort of the memes and the jokes where somebody will show a mobile checkout page and it has like eight buttons. It's like shop pay and, you know, Amazon pay and uh, you know, Google and Apple pay and all this point being, it's going to get really competitive here. And uh, so here's what stable coins have the potential to bring. One is a set of rails that are uh, you know, much lower cost to move money, not just for payments, but for, you know, sending money from here to another country. Um, it, they have uh, not only consumer implications, but also business implications, right? I'm a, I'm a contractor now when I get paid by some of the companies that I work with, you know, I'm paying just insane chase, you know, transfer fees, this, that, and the other thing. Stable coins, you know, have the potential. They're not at scale today. It's not easy to move them from one endpoint to another today. I think that's going to change really, really quickly. And the reason is because you have so many brands competing with PayPal for your attention and for my attention. Uh, And in order to make merchants happy, 
uh, in order to make consumers happy, you're going to have to add more value than the sort of convenience of PayPal, right? And, and how do you do that? More value on the consumer side, perhaps higher yield on my stablecoin balance. Uh, I don't know how, you know, how uh, sustainable the yields are that we're seeing you know, today. They're probably not sustainable, but certainly higher than 0.2%, right? So, so higher than nothing. Yeah, higher than nothing. <laughs> it's great. On my business account at Chase, I'm getting nothing. I mean, it's nuts. So, yeah. you know, some, some benefit there. Um, get rid of some of these fees for, for moving money internationally. And then uh, I, I think that on the merchant side, you're going to be able to start to give some rebates and some relief to merchants who, who do accept stable coins. And, and this is where it's going to be interesting to watch what PayPal does. Uh, and, and frankly, I'm excited to see which ones of the sort of neobanks really pick up. Uh, I'm excited to see which is the first big branded neobank to offer, you know, sort of this new visa, you know, USDC, um, let's just call it a little money, you know, money account over here, where I you know, take a thousand bucks, put it in, get a yield that's maybe 6%, can move that money around via the Visa network to spend it if I want. I mean, I think that's going to be really attractive when paired with uh, an existing strong brand, call it a chime or something like that. And somebody's going to do that. Uh, they're going to do it. I mean, we're already seeing huge banks in Europe and abroad, uh, even like within the last week or two is starting to say that they're going to offer, you know, these services, uh, to some yep. degree. And, um, you know, the model has now been proven by the Voyagers and block and Celsius's of the world that you can, you know, safely park your money and gain yield. So whoever can combine sort of, as you said, you have to be a bit of everything in your business. Some, one of these banks is going to have to step in and be everything, uh, for this business. And, yep. I, I think this is like three to six months, not three to six years at this point. Precisely. Yeah. I delete all my tweets for, you know, because I've had so much trauma from, <laughs> from, from <laughs> you know, tweet attacks for, for years. Um, but, but mainly, yeah, but, but I've said the same thing. Uh, I think, you know, right now, some of what we're talking about sounds implausible. Um, but you saw it, look, Tether went from what, like 2 billion to 20 billion in total volume uh, or in total, you know, outstanding, um, uh, stable dollars this year, you know, you're going to see USDC, I think, or, or sort of the aggregate non-tether KYC stable coins. Uh, and certainly if Libra comes into play, which is a little bit more of, again, of a, of a, perhaps a private money, depending on, you know, what they back it with, you know, we're not really sure what that's going to look like when it comes out of the gate. Um, but, but massive, massive numbers of, uh, of these crypto dollars out in the market. And uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be really, really exciting to see, you know, th I think people think that, for example, Novi, uh, if Facebook's wallet is, is just going to be the de facto winner. And uh, I, I am just so, so, so excited to see, you know, what entrepreneurs kind of wrap Libra into their products or DM, I'm sorry, uh, wrap USDC in, uh, but have a lot more choice and less strategy tax uh, than Facebook and how they approach this. And just less like reputational friction, right? Exactly, I mean, precisely. We're already seeing Libra rebrand to DM, as you touched on, just to separate themselves from Facebook. So I don't think it's a far jump to believe that people are going to be a bit resistant to a Facebook wallet as their, as their core, core choice, right? I mean, people just exactly. don't want to mess with Facebook and giving Facebook control over your money is a, is a pretty big jump. So it's, it's, it's a huge leap. Uh, uh, the... The thing, however, is that 
Um, so it's more of an issue for the folks who are talking about and even know that DM exists today than the, let's just call it, you know, billion plus folks who might actually just see it on WhatsApp right. or, or see, you know, you know, see an ad for in, in Facebook or Instagram to, to download the DM will, uh, is the DM wallet. It would be the Novi wallet with, with DM in it. Yeah. Uh, those folks will just say, Hey, and I, you know, Facebook gives me five, 10 bucks of it probably at some point. I don't know that those folks really care. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just going back to the PayPal thing, I just still find it so interesting that they're, I mean, Jack has obviously forced their hand with square a that's all. That's what it is. Right. I mean, I I don't view it as some like corporate ethos that this is the future. I just feel like they have to be in it. Same thing you're, I'm sure you're seeing from institution. All of a sudden, every single institution has a research report on Bitcoin, not because they care about Bitcoin because their customers are asking them about Bitcoin. And so they, they have to do it. Right unquestionably unquestionably but you know, the best companies in the world are participating in cryptocurrency to get yeah. back to you know when i think of institutions again not being somebody who came from wall street uh a lot of my research team gets excited about the fidelities entering That's, and you know all yeah. the other wonderful institutions i get so excited about you know visa right like we talked about par- partnering you know with usdc um, and, and just so many of the other institutions that are you know, partnering for payments and actual real interesting consumer use cases. Right. So we have all these use cases and then we have the, obviously, if you touch on the store value, the micro strategy, yeah. the, I'm putting my money into this because my buying power of the dollar is dying and holding cash is basically just lighting, you know, our treasury on fire. Yep. So we saw MicroStrategy do it. We've seen Square do it. We're seeing some other smaller companies. What does it take to see the big boys do it. You know, at what point can we expect an Apple or a Facebook or an Amazon or a Google to start talking about, you know, this as a treasury asset? Yeah. So I would be really surprised if any of those uh, companies, uh, their, I mean, their treasuries are growing by leaps and bounds from, you know, in many cases, you know, sort of natural monopolies and specific markets. Um, and, and or just insane competitive advantages that compete continue to compound. So I don't necessarily see tech companies uh, having a need, and and they've proven, for example, that they can redeploy capital uh, better. Like they don't store value, right? So I would say tech companies are like the last uh, type of uh, the best tech companies, the ones that you just highlighted. Um, you know, they're. Their cost of capital, I mean, they, they reinvest their capital in building just monster businesses. And today, the market is rewarding them, not with profit, you know, even if they don't have profits, in reinvesting in, in right. you know, the top line. So it would be companies, it's a, like, I could, it would be great to see you know, sort of IBM, for example. Um, they remind me of MicroStrategy in, in a lot of ways, where the core business isn't supremely you know, exciting. It's a consulting and you know, largely a services and consulting mm-hmm. driven, you know, data business. Uh, okay. IBM, you know, blockchain is you know, critical to the future. Well, what's the best application of blockchain, you know, money, uh, money in all its forms. Okay. Park some of your treasury and, and Bitcoin and put your money where your mouth is. So that, that would be a more likely one. Do I, I'm sorry, that would be a, a I could see that being a more compelling strategy. Right. I mean, if you get one company of that scale, 
to put treasury in and to actually move the needle, you know, there you're talking about, you know, billions of dollars and, and that gets really interesting and it's not right. implausible. So I, I don't know when that's going to happen and I'm not in the habit of making those wild don't. predictions. Um, You've been on Twitter long enough to know that uh, you can't uh, uh, make wild predictions because somebody will take back seven years yeah. and uh, make make a. Oh, and and Larry Cermak will own me for it. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, we, Michael Saylor, right? People are pulling up his 2013 tweet saying that Bitcoin was basically dead, and yeah, God forbid somebody evolve in seven well, years e- or even, even seven me. weeks. I've done. The, I did the dummy thing, you know, like when he when he, I, I you know, his particular style of talking about Bitcoin is. It's interesting. It's not like mine, but you know, so I kind of mocked it when it came out and I said, Oh no, another one of these guys, but you know, I've listened a lot more and that was too quick a judgment. And it was a, it was a bad judgment on my part. When you listen, he does have a very sophisticated understanding of, you know, this being, you know, what the long-term trend is here. Um, and so he, he's, he's clearly bright and he's actually bright enough to talk in a very, a lot of these folks are, you know, you know, pomp takes a lot of heat, but he's smart enough to talk in a very specific focused, consistent way that appeals to a lot of people about the thing that he cares about. And so, and it works and, and it's been positive. Um, and, you know, I think you need those folks and you need the skeptics uh, as well uh, you know, to keep folks grounded. And- Smart people have strong opinions loosely held, right? You're allowed to change. Uh, Well, you're allowed to change sometimes. You don't just walk the party line, uh, walk the party line. uh, I'm being cast from, yeah, I started as a Bitcoin maxi and and, got into that cult and then got turned off by the fact that to to be part of that cult, you had to agree with basically every talking point. And and I got really interested in Ethereum being around really brilliant people like Taya Leibowitz and some of the builders that he was working with and got to know. Uh, and you get really excited. And if you're into technology, it's hard not to start to get excited about Ethereum and you know, a, you know, a handful of the other, you know, layer one chains out there and what's happening in DeFi. And you're going to offend folks as you start to get excited about things that you know, they think are a threat. So you just have to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I think that there's even an argument going back to the Apples and Googles, the FANG stocks, that those are stores of value themselves. Right. Oh, yeah. So they don't need to put their treasury in a store of value if people view buying their stock as a store of value in itself. Because, uh, right. So, and then the, the second argument is that they're just way too big and Bitcoin's way too small. Yeah. Like, I think uh, your point I mean, is- you would move them. Mm-hmm. If Apple wanted to put 1% of their treasury in Bitcoin, they would own every Bitcoin. <laughs> they would. Exactly. <laughs> and to your point, though, indexes, as you know, have become you know, such a critical part of people's portfolio that it's literally you park your money there, you don't think about it. And as the tech companies become ever larger parts of those indexes, yeah, to your point, they really are effectively a store of value. That's interesting. Now we have the, I mean, we're hearing about the S&P creating an index uh, product. And I think that also is going to be extremely popular in the coming six months to years. That's something you guys are seeing on your end as well. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I understood that question exactly. Uh, well, I, the S&P is working, I know, on an index product that oh, will be yes, traded. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, yep. and, uh, and we're seeing obviously a lot of private ones. And that's a huge movement actually in the smaller projects on DeFi is to create these index yeah. products. But and there's that's so something much that demand. you see as a huge evolution here that we're going to start to see? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that you see so many of these index products, for example, Bitwise launches theirs, trades way above, you know, trades at a massive premium. There's more demand for these products than, you know, the actual uh, fundamentals can sort of secure and, and be backed. And so, 
So people are very, very hungry for, for index products. They want exposure. Uh, this is extremely complex stuff. Uh, uh, to you, you know, DeFi, for example, is extremely complex. Uh, so full disclosure, one of my clients that I'm uh, consulting with is a company called 21 Shares. Uh, they have another brand name called Immune, A-M-U-N, phenomenal company. I'm a small investor, have known the founder Haney for years. Uh, they have a set of ETPs, you know, very healthy business regulated in Switzerland uh, that's doing well, but they're launching a set of what you just talked about, DeFi uh, tokens that will represent different strategies, right? Indexes. And, and I won't pump it here um, too hard, but, you know, it could be similar to sort of Wi-Fi looking for, you know, the best yield. Um, if I deposit a thousand dollars, you know, we'll find the best yield across a bunch of different pools. Um, and then other ones like, Hey, here's a, here's a coin that gives you exposure to all of the different proof of stake protocols, as well as, you know, instead of just owning the tokens, like you wouldn't a centralized exchange, you can participate in the economics of those proof of stake protocols and our additional coins or tokens and fees. So, you know, you're going to see these more sophisticated products, but they're going to be autopilot because honestly, I can't, I don't have the time, the know-how, the access. I live in New York. I can't even trade that. Yeah. I can't do yeah. this stuff. Um, and so that to me is really promising. We've been talking a lot about institutions. Uh, I think those products will start by appealing to somebody just above your casual retail cash app user. You know, maybe, maybe again, you know, me, and then it, it may rise actually up to, you know, institutional allocations. I'm actually really curious to see what institutions will start to allocate to after, you know, BTC. I saw somebody tweet out today, you know, who's going to be the Michael Saylor of ETH. Um, you know, Jill Lubin obviously is that today. It's probably going to be a technologist. Um, you know, it'd be really interesting. I, actually, it would be really interesting to see if one of the tech companies, and again, maybe not one of the you know, five that we named at the top, but you know, a different tech company, you know, Ethereum is much more, I think, of a technology plus money play, um, you know, makes ETH you know, part of a treasury asset or something like that. Mm -hmm. That'd be interesting. Yeah. And we've seen Grayscale recently sort of come out and say, listen, our, we're getting a lot more interest in our Ethereum products now, even than our Bitcoin right. products. And, and I mean, they're buying more of both than are being mined, right? This year, <laughs> talk about supply side shock, but I do agree with you that I think that there's a lot of people who are behind the scenes looking at Ethereum much more seriously than before and maybe even more so than Bitcoin. Yes. And I don't know if they're looking at it on, so on the, on that 10 year horizon uh, right. and you can see it in the narrative. I think most folks who are deep in the Ethereum ecosystem realize that they're saying, Hey, I think there's a, you know, there's a four X, five X, 10 X on ETH here in the very near term. And, and you know, maybe there is, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, that might be speculative, like the, you know, call it Bitcoin led mania of 2017. Bitcoin to um, a million. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but there's just so much development happening uh, in actual real case, real use cases on Ethereum uh, that are starting to emerge at significant scale, you know, tokens that um, sort of rely on Ethereum. I wouldn't say as a reserve asset, but, you know, re rely on smart contracts, um, you know, DeFi and, and you know, NFTs, uh, real use cases, real money being transacted. It, and it's extremely bullish, obviously, for Ethereum in the near term. Essentially what you said about uh, the, the indexes, because your average person is just never going to understand DeFi. Right. They, they never are. It's, it's, I mean, I don't under, yield farming. And when you get really deep into no. it, but 
that's why these automated products that are based on indexes are so interesting. Because By the way, not just, only that, oh, I interrupted you. Go ahead, no, please, please. Yeah, so I mean, today we just saw, and I don't want to you know, pick on Hugh Carp or Nexus Mutual, but if the actual person who's you know, created the DeFi insurance protocol is hacked for eight and a half million bucks, man, we, yeah, yeah. via MetaMask. Like we got some issues here. This is not something that the average person is going to be playing with uh, or understanding or understanding how to secure it today, uh, nor should they. I mean, honestly, they, they absolutely, absolutely should not. So um, yeah, I think custodial or index-based or other ways to get exposure uh, it's, it's how this is going to happen, both on the institutional side as well. I mean, the, the non like paradigm dragonfly three arrows institutional side, you know, people who do other things, um, they're going to allocate, you know, not by doing it directly. I mean, you're in New York, arguably the most heavily regulated and difficult place on planet earth to, to be in, in yeah. crypto, right? I can even you use BlockFi and it's like right down the road, you know? Yeah. I mean, do you think that regulation is still, I don't want to say the biggest threat, but the biggest hurdle um, to adoption? And what do you see regulators potentially focusing on in the coming months and years? Yeah. So I think dumb regulation is, is the biggest threat, meaning literally not understanding uh, the technology, not understanding uh, how this you know, type of money, cryptocurrencies are different um, than you know, sovereign currency, uh, how the assets are held, uh, how they're issued you know, in the case of stable coins. And so misapplying uh, regulation paradigms, the, the easiest sort of mental model I have is like, when you think about how regulators have looked at the gig economy and you have like full-time workers and then you have contractors, there's probably like a third uh, regulatory tranche that should be like the gig worker, you know, regulation that has elements of both. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. Um, there's likewise probably, you know, some regulatory approach that isn't no regulation and, and there is regulation today. I mean, we're doing KYC AML. If, if you're, you know, if, if I want USDC, I go through that process. Uh, but, but just, you know, saying that we're going to regulate stablecoin issuers, for example, as banks, uh, that's, you know, it's ludicrous. And, and that, frankly, that's, yeah, that yeah one was... so that's bad regulation. And you, know, you saw it again with, uh, I think it was FINRA or, or, you know, one of these other institutions that was just hacked and they retain the information for, it wasn't FINRA, but it was another one that, but they, FinCEN, FinCEN, and they hold, you know, this data in perpetuity. It's a honeypot. Like there's some really scary crap going on. Coindesk wrote a great article about it. Um, and so, you know, regulation, I think brings on risks that are, that can in many cases be worse than the problem they're trying to solve. Uh, you touched on it, but that, uh, I guess, uh, Taleb led, is that her name? Uh, potential legislation yeah. on stable coins, which I don't believe will ever see the light of day, but my God, like, a, so for anyone who's listening and doesn't understand, didn't hear about it, it, it. She basically was saying that she wanted stable coins to be led, uh, to be regulated like banks. Correct. So if you're going to issue a stable coin, you had to have the same licensing, the same structures in place as a bank. But the argument was that stable coins are racist and predatory and that they don't want people uh, creating stable coins and taking care and taking advantage of poor people. 
So the answer to that is to make them turn into banks who are actually, you know, predatory and, and taking advantage yeah. of poor people. The, the, the jump in logic to me, I, I, it bothered me for like three days. Uh, anyone who had listened, I just bitched about this uh, potential re- regulation. But yeah, and then even worse than the regulation was you know Rohan Gray, who was one of the thinkers, the lawyer, who, who yeah. behind it, and and who's clearly an exceptionally intelligent person and understands bank regulation and financial and systemic risks very deeply. Uh, but I think is trying to apply them again in ways that are totally tone deaf and antithetical to the actual technology. It has said thing almost gleefully. If you, if you look at the tone about, you know, if it looks like, I think it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, like, uh, or something of that nature. But, you know, he's said things like, and it gets back to the platform, um, you know, sort of section 230, you know, node operators could potentially, you know, be liable criminally the implication he made was but you know we wouldn't we wouldn't actually aggressively go after them but you know that they could be liable for for example illegal transactions that they right. i mean it's just you know come on leave it to the u.s government to make crypto somehow yeah. painted as racist oh yeah <laughs> and, and yeah the racism thing i mean it's just so comical it's like banks are banks have systemically uh you know blacklisted and not uh loaned or given you know, equal opportunity. I mean, it's like, relaying, so yeah, let's let's regulate everybody who's not doing that or may not like banks. I mean, come on, guys, don't kill innovation and, while it's sprouting. And beyond even killing innovation, I mean, it takes about five minutes of reading to understand that crypto was literally created, <laughs> or yeah. or it's used to, to for the opposite purpose, right? To to empower yeah. uh, poor people. All you have to do is look at any place where they actually have hyperinflation, or people don't have access to their money to see how it helps the poor. Like Venezuela, Iran, Lebanon, Argentina. You choose your uh, your country. Right. And you could cherry pick data points that say, hey, the wealth today is concentrated in a handful of you know, Bitcoin whales or Ethereum whales or this, that, and the other thing, but you're never going to get to the point where that starts to change and it has been changing, right? As new entrants come, as technology is built that reaches these folks, um, it, it's unquestionably happening. And you know, we could point to all the examples you just highlighted. Uh, and so again, to nip that in the bud, while, you know, we're kind of improving, while quote-unquote decentralization is starting to propagate out. It's just insane. So we've talked about regulation and we've touched on central bank digital currencies before, but, you know, where do central bank digital currencies, what is their role in all of this? I mean, China, we're obviously already seeing it, but what's our maybe time horizon for seeing it, you know, with the euro or the dollar and how does it affect Bitcoin and crypto? Yeah, so I read uh, Ryan Selkis's, uh, I love his you know, 20, 130 20, page. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I'm on like page 100. And, and oh look, I, I really enjoy I it. Tried. Yeah, he's brave great. and he you know, takes a, a viewpoint. Um, it's, it's opinion mixed with analysis, but he has a sound understanding of the research as well. Uh, even if you know, what he's presenting isn't research, it's really well thought out. Um, and so he kind of took a very long, he said, look, I don't really care. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to put that word in his mouth, but look, that's, that stuff's 10 years off. I don't think that's the case, um, right? Like China has more than a billion people and DCEP, you know, their central bank digital currency is currently in pilots and is launching. And it is clearly a surveillance currency uh, in a society that 
you know, already has cameras on you know every street that, you know, you have your national ID, like there's, this is surveillance currency. If anything, to me, it's a factor we didn't talk about earlier that strengthens the bull case and the necessity of, you know, Bitcoin and other censorship Absolutely. resistant currencies. Uh, they won't unilaterally or universally, I don't believe replace central bank currencies, digital or not. Uh, but we need the alternatives. There are transactions that have to be private, that have to be unstoppable. We can't put, you know, in the hands of our government, the, you know, every element of money from the moment of issuance, the moment of spend to how it's recycled, um, you know, and then reused and, and where it's stored. And, you know, we've just seen through, through history, uh, you have to have a way uh, to store your own value and to move that value outside of government purview, you know, and the effect that for any, you know, case, for example, that a country blows up like Zimbabwe, you know, or, or Venezuela, um, you know, I'm reading a book, Lords of Finance about the great depression now. And so, you know, it, it's really important that we have the ability to have some level of financial sovereignty, central bank digital currencies will absolutely reduce that by default. Uh, and yeah. it's critical. Uh, so anyway, it's not, it's not possible to quote unquote regulate Bitcoin anymore. Um, it's, you know, I, or Ethereum, I, I don't believe you know, there's going to be a pocket that pops up somewhere else, you know, today to, to mine those currencies, you know, later uh, to stake those currencies you know, with Ethereum, but you, you know, they're, they're global at this point and distributed. So, uh, you know, it's just a matter, it may have impacts on price, but you're not going, these networks are not going away, these money networks. Yeah, they can't regulate Bitcoin anymore, but they can certainly make it really difficult for you to get money in and out. Yes, it, yes, unquestionably. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of the um, the scarier part. But it's a you know, money's a global competitive market as well. So you yeah, know, if the U.S. does that or China does that. You know, somebody else might else. pop up. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. That, that I guess maybe that's yeah. So with Bitcoin, I think that's the strongest point is it's just whack a mole at this point. Yeah, and you said obviously that. I mean, we can all agree that there's things that cash are great for, right? So if everything becomes a CBDC and is all digital, there'll be no more private transacting with cash, which increases the bull case for Bitcoin. Also, I mean, I think just getting more people comfortable with the idea of a wallet and transacting digitally inevitably will draw them towards the original, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're going to be holding like with your Novi wallet or your PayPal wallet. I mean... You're going to be, you're going to be holding, you know, or you're in China, you're going to be holding in your WeChat wallet, DCEP and, and, you know, whatever other digital currencies, um, you know, they allow and, and the same in the U.S. once this happens. But it's fun to talk about, obviously, the, uh, well, not fun at all, but it's common to talk about in the Bitcoin community, the hyperinflation of the dollar and that that's coming and that Bitcoin will come become the uh, reserve currency of the world. But I mean, you've recently even tweeted, I think that the dollar is still the, reserve currency of crypto, right? Yeah. And increasingly so, I mean, stable coins are critical to the functioning of crypto markets. It's, uh, you know, particularly because we're still in a time of, you know, sort of heavy trading speculation, trading and speculation. I mean, that's just a big part of the market. And so the velocity of money that's moving through these markets, uh, not sort of parked in long-term store value is you know, dollar denominated because people don't want that volatility while they're trading. Um, or, you know, that's not the purpose of, of, of their strategies. So, yeah, I mean, and, and the markets are functioning. And right. so, yeah. 
and the proliferation of stable coins. I mean, they are just dollars, right? I mean, people yep. we, we people want to pretend that they're cryptocurrency, right. but but at the end of the day, the dollar hyperinflates. So do your stable coins. Correct. Correct. Yeah, which is yep. devastating. So yeah, I mean, I people are we're... trying to get exposure to the cryptocurrencies. To your point, uh, you know, they're not trying to get ex- exposure to the dollar. They're just using it, yeah, you know, as a means for their strategies. Yeah, I agree. So I, I know we're kind of up against it with time. So with the block specifically, I guess, and G, G, G2M, that's what's G2M. Yeah. Um, yeah what do you G2M see? Ventures. It's a, it's sort of, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead, please. Yeah. But, but I'd love to actually answer the question you were going to ask. I was just going to say, so what do you see as like the, the core sort of competencies of your business evolving over the next year? Because obviously it seems to change so fast. Right. Yeah. So I called the, the consulting business go-to-market ventures, GTM ventures, because I basically looked at the you know crypto landscape and said, hey, the thing that I think most of these uh, entities have difficulty with is not creating you know, really cool technology, um, but actually taking it to market, explaining yeah. it to people, uh, yeah, selling it, marketing it. Uh, and I really have done that before for very popular products. Um, and, you know, from, from Venmo to, you know, before that, what, what now is Google Pay and, and you're populating that. And, and when I say go to market, it's not only to the end user, the end retail user, but, but also, again, the institutions who will use these products. So, you know, with Immune, it could be the uh, exchanges that might want to list these uh, tokens. I work with another company uh, called Nash, uh, which is an exchange-based in Europe. Yeah. So non-custodial exchange. And, and so I love the ethos of Nash and, you know, working with them, uh, you know, it's, it's a fantastic group of folks um, where the founders are five developers. Uh, they have skill sets beyond that, but I can work with them to bring sort of a go-to-market prioritization strategy and work with their business team uh, not only to like make introductions and, but, but really strategically to say, Hey, this is, here's some best practices to go from X to 10X. So it's, uh, it's really top to bottom services, obviously. And it's so important because in any nascent inter- industry like this, you have these like this core of tech people who are so hardcore and brilliant, but literally don't know anything about anything else when, when it comes to. Yeah, I've lucked out. I think, you know, I try to avoid companies that don't know anything about it. Like ones who realize the value of a sound go to market strategy will listen, you know, to folks who have done it before and, and then we'll invest behind it. Right. Because I can only work with a limited set of companies. Um, and then, you know, as I look long-term uh, I said it earlier, but I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, the application of stable coins and, uh, and, you know, new call it payments or money movement rails, not like ones that depend on volatile cryptocurrencies like XRP, but um, you know, <laughs> low, sort of low cost global rails uh, that move money. It's, it's the area that I participated in. Um, so, so, you know, at the previous companies that I've worked at in long run, you know, I'll probably build a business in that, uh, in that area. It's, it's going to be a year, two years, that kind of thing. I love that that's the long run in crypto. Yeah. That's the long run. Yeah. Like if yeah. you had a 10 year in 2010, if someone said to you, oh, what are you going to do in long run? Well, you yeah. know, 10 years down the oh, road, right. I might. And now Isn't it's it like, crazy? <laughs> really, it feels these, like I've I mean, lived multiple lifetimes. Yeah. And with the block, look, I thought uh, just crypto moves at light speed. And so our current CEO of the block, like I'm chairman now is he's a, he's a came 
through Wall Street, incredible understanding of you know, financial markets, great leaders. Names Mike McCaffrey. We're all Mike's at the block. Seriously. I just said, look, he's a better leader. I'm, a, I'm an intense, volatile, outward personality. Like just we need a leader where the focus is on the work that these folks are doing, the incredible work and that brand. And it's an institutional brand. Um, so anyway, he's been doing a great job. But yeah, things just changed so darn fast. A year. I love it. You know, right. when I retire in <laughs> yeah, 18 months, I'll be able to focus yeah. on my hobbies. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So where can uh, everybody keep up with you, follow you after this? Yeah. So uh, if you want to see my tweets for you know, 48 hours at a time uh, before I delete them, <laughs> at mdudas, at m-d-u-d-a-s. But yeah, I, look, I have my DMs open there and I respond to you know, pretty much everybody who reaches out and, and I really enjoy the conversation these days. And frankly, I've really been heartened by the conversation and how positive it's become. We have a lot of folks who have moved from maxis uh, into a lot of the most thoughtful people are now interested in multiple cryptocurrencies. So uh, for the last six to nine months, I've just been really having a blast as much publicly as I have sort of privately in DMs. And I'm also at MDUDAS on Telegram. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. A lot of really interesting insight here because so many people don't understand what it takes uh, to actually understand this market, put all that research together when it's so incredibly scattered and and brand new. And then to obviously then be able to use that to project what's coming. You know, it's just a rare person. So I appreciate you giving us that insight. I think people are going to absolutely love the conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Scott. Thanks. Let's go.